This is episode 169. I'm Tommy Serafinski, and this is the Conservation and Science Podcast, where we take a deep dive into topics of ecology, conservation, and human-wildlife conflict. I strive to bring you diverse perspectives on every environmental story, while examining their social and political dimensions. This is another solo episode where I'm answering questions and talking about subjects you've asked me about. If you have a feedback or suggestions for a future episode like this one, best if you leave me a comment under the YouTube video or just send me an email, ideally by replying to my newsletter, or just catch me on social media. All links are in the description of this episode. And before I start, I want to acknowledge two things. First, the usual interview-style episodes are still coming on an unchanged fortnightly schedule. And as always, I also welcome your feedback and suggestions of topics and guests you would like to hear from. And second, during this episode, I will reference a number of papers, peer-reviewed papers, as well as books. And I also link all those papers and books in the description of this show. So the idea of this episode started with the questions that you asked me along the lines, are you against reintroductions or I'm assuming you pro-wolf, Tommy. So I want to state that in this episode, I am dealing with reintroductions, aka species restoration, and not rewilding. Species restoration could be part of the rewilding, but I'm considered it as a separate topic. And so just to be clear, today I'm talking about reintroductions or restoration of species, not rewilding. To me, these are separate topics. In this episode, I'm going to talk first about the context and considerations for reintroductions, both ecological and social. I'm going to talk about native versus non-native species reintroduction. And then finally, I'm going to try to answer the question to reintroduce or not to reintroduce. And I'm going to talk about tools and techniques, resources, and also about social considerations for reintroductions. And at this point, I feel like I owe you a little side rant. And this is about the term reintroductions. Like to me, that term doesn't make sense because reintroduction means that something was introduced and now is introduced again, reintroduced. So from the perspective of species that were extirpated for any geographical area, that doesn't make sense. Clearly restoration would be a better term. Some prefer term re-establishment. I read a book by great conservationist Roy Dennis, who was part of a incredible number of uh, reintroductions, and he, he described them all in a book. And the title of that book is Restoring the Wild. You see what I mean? It's not reintroducing the wild, it's restoring the wild. But well, the reintroductions is a term that is most often used, so I guess we stuck with it. And for the purpose of this episode, I will be using that term from a perspective of, you know, a better communication. Um, but I will try to be careful where I'm using it, because as you will see in this episode, it really not always makes sense. And there are cases when it actually makes sense. So I will try and, and do my best to be deliberate with using those terms. However, please be aware that uh, reintroduction and restoration uh, or re-establishment are the terms that might be used interchangeably. First, context and consideration. And when I'm thinking about reintroductions, the first consideration is whether we're talking about native or non-native species. 
And some of you might at this point go like, oh my God, why would anyone want to introduce non-native species? It never ends up well. And there are cases where actually putting non-native species might make sense. I'm going to discuss that later on in the podcast. But at this moment, I just want to say that in this case, the word introductions, maybe not so much reintroductions, but introductions would actually make sense because we introducing species that was not there before. Second consideration is that why species was extirpated and is the habitat still there? If the habitat is still there and, you know, that's obviously a good sign that you could put back a species, but why it was extirpated in the first place? Good examples are wolves that were extirpated because they are just inconvenient neighbors, especially for livestock farmers. But as soon as you stop shooting them on the first sight or second, uh, they're coming back. So the habitat is still there. That is definitely the big consideration because if the habitat is not there or the habitat is modified, then it probably doesn't make sense to put those animals back because they have no habitat in there. It's not only that the habitat is not there. The habitat may be still there, but it may be heavily modified or it might be fragmented. As an example, this is one of the arguments when talking about bringing back wolf to either Scotland or Ireland, that the habitat isn't there, or the habitat was so heavily modified that it's so fragmented that either animals wouldn't live there or human-wildlife conflict would be off the chart. And there are some indications that they are actually right. And the second aspect of it is, if you put those animals back, would they fulfill their ecological function? And I understand that the concept of ecological function itself might be controversial to some. Um, I heard uh, opinions that, well, if you put, the, for example, wolves back and they're scavenging the trash bins and eating sheep, then now that's their ecological function. I disagree with that, although I understand where they're coming from. And that is probably the material for another podcast, and it is outside of the scope of this podcast. Let's just circumvent that, that piece by saying intended ecological function. And there is a research that may indicate that this is actually a good point, and I would like to draw your attention to, to me at this point, a classic paper by Paolo Cucci, I hope I pronounced the name correctly, from the Department of Biology and Biotechnologies, Spienza, University of Rome. And the title of the paper is Anthropogenic Food Subsidies Hinder the Ecological Role of Wolves. Insights from Conservation of Apex Predators in Human Modified Landscapes. And essentially what that paper describes is that the region of Italy called Abruzzo, more than half of diet of wolves is livestock, arguably fallen livestock, not like depredation. But the point is that if we think we're bringing back wolves for them to keep the wild ungulates herd healthy and regulate the numbers, then this is their intended ecological functions. And if they have these anthropogenic food subsidies, then obviously they're not fulfilling that function. So that is another very important consideration before answering a question whether I'm for reintroductions or against reintroductions. And speaking about the ecosystem function, now is a good time to deal with native versus non-native uh, species. And I'll give you two examples. 
First is the project that goes on in the UK, uh, and it is to bring back or reintroduce or restore, you never, whatever you call it, a bison. And technically, this is an incorrect bison because it brought the European bison in the place of extinct, in fact, steppe bison. We talked about this in episode 135 of the podcast. So since the bison that was there, the steppe bison, is extinct, then European bison is as good of a bison as you're ever going to get. And the question is, like, are they going to perform the same intended ecological function? And if the answer is yes, then we might introduce technically non-native species in a place of native species because it will slot in in the same ecological niche. So that's one example. Second example, which might be a little bit more far-fetched, is beavers in Ireland. So <laughs> this is a funny thing because there is no historical record of beavers being present in Ireland. And that is what it means. There's no record of them being present. It doesn't mean that they weren't present. It's, you know, not many people are especially looking for uh, the evidence of beavers being there. Technically, probably they could be there because they were connected with the mainland Europe through the Doggerland as the British islands, the, the Great Britain was. So whether they ever made it to Ireland or not, we don't know. There is no record. However, the ecosystem is pretty much the same. So if we see all the benefits of beavers in the one ecosystem, and then you see another ecosystem that is very similar or the same, then it would be reasonably to assume that those benefits for the ecosystem will also materialize when you introduce beavers who are technically, again, non-native species, but they might have been native. And, you know, the whole topic of what's native, what's non-native, what's invasive, that's, again, probably another rabbit hole that we might get into another episode if that's something that would interest you, because I give you an example. Uh, in the majority of Europe now, it's being colonized by golden jackal. And... This is happening entirely naturally. Well, some might argue that this is not natural because of the climate change, but the golden jackal is colonizing Europe on, the, on its own steam. So then it becomes a question, is it native or non-native species? And is it invasive or non-invasive? And whether the term invasive or non-native is reserved to cases where there is a direct human intervention and whether human intervention like climate change counts as as one of those that then would classif make us classify a species as non-native or invasive etc um, again this is separate to the topic of this podcast um, but nevertheless it is interesting consideration and i hope that i give you example how that might uh, be relevant to whether we should reintroduce or restore uh, certain species, even if technically they're non-native. And you know what? At the end of the day, sometimes the only way to find out is to try. Especially that those trials are 
extremely limited. They're they're very controlled. They're very limited. They're, they're, they're fence and enclosures. They usually start with fence enclosures. Or, you know, like in Scotland, uh, there's talks about um, restoring the links. And we, they talk about two or three cats with GPS collars. So, so every of... And again, I come back to the book um, that I mentioned earlier, Restoring the Wild. When you read that book, you, it's just the amount of red tape is just unbelievable. So... I think that in many occasions, the only way is to actually try um, to put the species and see what's going on, because often calls for more research and more data and so on and so forth. You know, at some point, they're becoming a very convenient way of delaying and stalling any efforts to restore the species or, or put the species back. And maybe especially when the species was extirpated, it was not present on the landscape for a long time, that landscape, that habitat has changed. No doubt. It's different. And, and, and again, sometimes the only way to find out is to actually try something. And that might be quicker, less risky, and more reliable than trying to do some miraculous computer models of what is going to happen in the environment. And now let's get to the meat of it, of uh, considering whether we should reintroduce species or not. And to me, the first and foremost is the question whether recolonization is possible. Are there pockets somewhere of the species? And is there a connectivity there that a species, that these animals can recolonize the areas where they've been extirpated. To me, this is far superior way than reintroducing them for many reasons. First of all, it is a significance of local genetics and local adaptations. The animals who are technically the same species, they have a little bit different uh, genetics, they have a little bit different adaptations to the region where they where they live. Similar like humans, right? Um, you take someone from the south of Italy and put them in Norway or Iceland, they're going to be miserable. And similarly, you take a people from Iceland and, and put them somewhere in, in, in Italy and in Spain, they're not going to do that well because they have a local adaptations. Same with the animals. So, it's way better if the animals can come back on their own steam. And that was uh, probably also one of the controversies with wolves in Yellowstone, believe it or not. There, that, that was controversial as well because the wolves that were brought to Yellowstone were a little bit different uh, variety, let's say, than the original wolves that were in the Yellowstone um, I read a lot of uh, documents about that, how much truth in that was or not, I don't know. Um, but this is one consideration. And there is a excellent book, which is, which is not really on this subject. The title is Nourishment, What Animals Can Teach Us About Rediscovering Our Nutritional Wisdom by Fred Provenza. And he made the point there that animals who live in one area, they're developing their local culture, their local knowledge, what to eat, for example, in any given area. And 
when you take an animals and you transport them thousands of kilometers and you cut them loose, they're just go like, oh, where, where am I? What am I supposed to eat? Are the plants the same? Are the food availability is the same? Um, and that obviously poses also a animal welfare issues. You, you, you got to understand that these animals are not happy if they're all of a sudden spend, you know, a couple of days in the crate and then they are just cut loose in a completely new place. Also, from the perspective of operations of such reintroduction, uh, it's, it's way easier. The animals will recolonize on their own steam because you don't have exactly this issue with sourcing the animals. Like, where are the animals? Where I'm going to take those animals from? Are they close enough to those that's supposed to be here? So it is... It is miles better to allow or maybe facilitate the recolonization uh, rather than straight up reintroduction. And on the subject of developing like local culture and knowledge, what to eat, that is especially important with carnivores, which tend to get less in trouble when they recolonize on their own steam. Partially because they're, you know, like if they show up somewhere and kill livestock, if they, they had natural inc inclination to kill livestock, they're probably going to be killed. So naturally, only those who are feeding on the wild animals tend to be more successful in that area. I heard that a couple of times that, especially in terms of carnivores, um, the human wildlife conflict levels are much lower if they recolonize. That makes sense intuitively. But I couldn't find the paper. I was almost sure that I saw the paper about this, but hands up, I couldn't find the paper that I would be able to confirm that theory. And speaking about the human-wildlife conflict, there is another uh, important aspect which is particularly relevant to Great Britain and Ireland, where these are islands, where the species like wolves or beavers, they, or lynx, they cannot recolonize. And again, when the animal shows up, just so shows up, just wolf shows up in Belgium, social conflict, the human wildlife conflict tends to be lower by the virtue of, oh, it's a wolf. It does wolf things. It shows up there and now I guess we have wolves. That by itself makes that social conflict lower than somebody else put the wolves in the crate and bring them in and cut them loose. If that wolf gets into trouble, if that wolf kills a sheep or cow or whatever else, now that is your wolf. And there becomes the conflict between people and people start blaming each other. So even from that aspect, if possible at all, recolonization, that's always preferable even if it will take much longer. And there are many uh, examples of places where animals would recolonize on their own steam. That was just a given, but certain people, conservationists, I don't know whether it's a correct term, they were just anxious. They just didn't want to wait. Just want to, you know, we want the wolves now. And that is bloody human arrogance. That's what I say. You know, we often hear about arrogance and all these things in terms of people who want to control and extirpate and, you know, 
uh, animals, but the same arrogance comes from people who just, just they just cannot wait for animal to show up. They just need to reintroduce it right now. Okay, rant over. That's not my intention to go too much of the tangents tangent here, but I think it is an important consideration. And speaking about social conflict, it is important to understand what is the level of social goodwill for animals to be in, in some places. And this is quite often a very underestimated aspect of it. And, you know, like, fake surveys doesn't cut it. I, I, I saw just recently a survey uh, about attitudes toward wolves in rural communities in Europe. Quite obviously, the results were just not believable. Let's put it this way. The results were not believable to anyone who spent any time talking about these subjects. And and that is the, the making perception, the makeup perception of the social acceptance is just not going to work. It is absolutely crucial for any reintroduction project to or even restoration uh, in, in case of like, let's allow those animals to come back and let's help with the connectivity. If the social goodwill, if the social acceptance is not there, that is going to put those animals in the center of a conflict. And they're not going to do well. And they're not, they're, they're, there's just, this is going to be mess. So that is a very important aspect that cannot be underestimated when talking about reintroductions. And that brings me to talking about resources. There are two things I want to touch on. First of all, the arguments that I often hear is like, why would you bring animal X, bison or beaver? We have so much to do to protect the animals and the habitat that we already have. We losing curlew, we losing uh, ground nesting birds, waders, etc., etc. Why waste, in their quotes, resources on some quote-unquote vanity project. And I think that this argument doesn't stand personally because it kind of treats those, those resources and, and people and money as a finite resource. And I think it is finite in terms when there is a, a organization that deals with conservation of curlew or, or ground nesting waders. And then, in fact, they have a budget, they have staff, they have people, and any additional project would be a burden, additional burden on their budget, on their staff, and so on. However, if there is an organization that is started from ground up, only dedicated to a project um, to, you know, get bison and bring back links or whatever else, I don't think that there will be someone who said like, well, I would donate 100 euro to wader conservation, but now I'm, I'm going to donate 50 euro to wader conservation and 50 euro to bison project. I don't think this is the case. I don't think this is the case in any meaningful way. And that's why I don't think that in most cases, the argument of like, oh, let's not lose, lose money and resources on the vanity projects or whatever else, stands. I think we can do both as a society. 
But there is a more important point. And that point is that social goodwill or societal goodwill is also a resource. And I would be way more concerned on depleting that resource. Any example might be the first attempt to reintroduce links to Scotland, where the project was mismanaged and some say it sat back a return of the links to Scotland for many, many years, maybe decades, because the project depleted the goodwill, the societal goodwill of people who were willing to come to the table to discuss the how the reintroductions could happen, etc., etc. If we screwed up on this point, then that is the resource that I would be concerned about. Not money, not membership donations, not hands on the ground, but actual societal acceptance, societal goodwill. Treat it as a resource. So that's another very important consideration when deciding whether we should reintroduce a species or not. Perhaps we shouldn't be wasting that resource of social goodwill on something that is less important than some other things uh, that would be more beneficial or more urgent uh, for the conservation, for the ecology. To summarize, first, kudos for people who are trying to do anything in terms of species restoration. The amount of red tape and obstacles that need to be surmounted is just mind-boggling. I would go again and recommend the, the book that I mentioned earlier, Restoring the Wild, Rewilding Our Skies, Woods, and Waterways by Roy Dennis. And when you read this book, you sometimes laugh and say like, well, why would anyone put so many obstacles and made people jump so many hoops to bring the few animals over, over the border? Um, that's what it is. So kudos to everyone who wants to do this, who are are willing to go through the all the all the hassle. Another one was the reintroductions of cheetahs somewhere. They were moving cheetahs across Africa, and that was just unbelievable. Where they actually couldn't get permissions until they had an animal. So they had an animals, and while the animals are in the crates, they're trying to get the permissions, and and it was just. Uh, just insanity. On top of that, those people need to deal and often deal with the social aspect of it and quite often with just unnecessary and undeserved abuse from um, certain parties. So kudos for people who are trying to do that. That's a first. Secondly, we got to start somewhere and however dumb the project might look like, we need to do this. We need to try, especially if it's independently uh, financed. They, I, I remember that bison project. Oh my God, it's, like, it's a wrong bison. It's a vanity project. It's a zoo. It's like, yes, maybe. But where are you going to start? You're not going to start with having great planes all of a sudden in, in the UK. you got to start somewhere so I would be in favor of limited trials, 
Yes, they might seem like a zoo. Yes, they might see as a as an enclosure, but there are miles better to do this way than try to do scientific research and gather data from different parts of the world, etc., etc., etc. That's my view on it. And finally, don't be arrogant, self-righteous prick. And that goes both ways. For those who want to restore the animals and for those who are against it. Come to the table and discuss. Try to find a middle ground. And we spoke about it in previous episode, actually, 168, um, how it was done in Estonia. Where even Sheep Farmer Association, they came to the table to discuss restoration of or, or protection measures for wolves to avoid split in society. And I think this is what is most important. Let's see another person and let's try to understand each other and come to the table and discuss. Just just log off of social media because what's going on there and the level of discussion there about reintroductions is just... Uh, I'm disappointed with opinions of some otherwise smart people. They would never express those opinions face to face. So, thank you for listening to this episode. Please leave me feedback. I read all of it in a YouTube uh, video comments or sending me an email. Let me know what other topics you would like me to cover. And until the next one. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave me five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show. 